Hello, everyone. I am Frank Place, Director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets, or PIM for short. And I am very happy to welcome you to the PIM webinar on land tenure and perceived tenure security in the era of social and economic transformation in Africa. This work is part of the PIM portfolio under our research flagship five on governance of natural resources. Our speaker today is Hosanna Gebru. He's a research fellow at the Development and Governance Division of the International Food Policy Research Institute. Now, he normally is based in Addis Ababa, but we're very happy to have him here in Washington uh, today for, this, for the webinar. Uh, Dr. Gebru undertakes applied microeconomics research with a focus on property rights, land markets, and investment incentives. He also specializes in gender disaggregated impact evaluations of various land policy and governance reforms assessing how those influence agricultural pro productivity and contribute to sustainable land management and intra-household welfare and bargaining power in a variety of African countries, uh, including Nigeria, Mozambique, Ghana, Ethiopia, and Uganda. And Hosanna also coordinates a project that we call Monitoring and Evaluation of Land Governance in Africa, or MELA, and it's, which is a pilot initiative designed to track progress and implementation of the, of the African Union's Declaration on Land Issues and Challenges, um, and that's taking place in 10 countries in Africa. Now, before I hand it over to Hosanna, let me remind everyone how we proceed with the webinar and our rules of the game. Uh, so our, our speaker will begin shortly with a presentation that you will see on your screens, and that presentation will last for about 30 minutes. During the presentation, we invite all of you to send in questions via the chat window on the right side of your screens. We will collate the questions and group any that are similar in content. Uh, once we are in the Q&A session, our speaker will address the questions uh, as we pose them to you on your behalf. Uh, we handle it this way to make the best use of our one hour together. Um, just as a reminder, we are recording the webinar and we'll make it available on our website shortly after the live event. And with that, I will hand it over to Hosanna. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. Um, uh, not sure if I should say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, but uh, hello, everyone. Uh, um, so, as uh, uh, so, before I start my presentation, I would like to make uh, a comment on this is not like a single study that I'm going to present, but it is more of a synthesis of the various findings from uh, case studies uh, from selected African countries, and the the motivation. Uh, So the motivation for this, uh, the motivation for this is that uh, over the course of the last decade or so, there has been a growing scrutiny uh, on the customary tenure system in terms of whether it's sufficient to safeguard land rights of uh, especially vulnerable groups like women and smallholder uh, farmers, and uh, uh, rightly so, many African countries undertook uh, land tenure programs to again enhance. Uh, good land governance, either by improving land administration systems or enhancing um, taking actions, policy actions to increase tenure security. But again, this was uh, with mixed results, one in terms of the potential economic and social outcomes of these uh, land uh, right protection programs. Uh, and what we see uh, from various countries is also like the uh, very low uptake of such kind of programs, especially what we call the land titling or registration and certification programs. And uh, the, the other issue that has been uh, subject of these reforms that has been happening in Africa is also the sustainability issues. And I will, over the course of the next few minutes, I'll try to touch those uh, various uh, dimensions of land governance issues in the continent. And again, even though there was a consensus in terms of the need to enhance tenure security and to address the scrutiny uh, of the customary tenure system, but there remains to be a knowledge gap in terms of like how do we measure tenure security before we even attempt to address uh, or to come up with policy prescriptions to address tenure security issues, and also how do we, uh, what level of disaggregation is deemed sufficient to protect land rights of the various vulnerable groups, especially the intra-household dimensions. 
And again, what we uh, see mainly associated with land rights protection or uh, good land governance is formalization of individual land rights has long been seen as kind of the, 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 the silver bullet to address issues of tenure and security. But again, as I mentioned earlier, there remains to be a huge knowledge gap in terms of like who do we are. Who are we trying to address the issues of tenure and security, and at what level would that be considered sufficient to, to enhance tenure security? And many African countries, as I mentioned earlier, uh, attempt, there is no lack of attempt to address tenure and security, but again, the issue remains to be in terms of how do we make it sustainable and uh, the equity uh, dimensions of these programs. So, the uh, webinar, I will try uh, over the course of the next few minutes, I'll try to again uh, address the knowledge gap uh, by assessing the potential regulatory and institutional challenges in maintaining good land governance in Africa. And I will try to draw on results from a uh, diagnostic tool uh, developed by the World Bank, the Land Governance Assessment Framework, just to give a snapshot of like what is at stake and what's the status quo in terms of uh, the regulatory and institutional uh, uh, issues in the continent. And also I'll try to use a draw on um, household surveys that um, the, the last few years, uh, over the course of the last decade, what we have is like, we are trying to get the, the to fill the data uh, gap in terms of addressing issues of tenure security, the gender dimensions of this. And I'll try to use, uh, again, the data from four African countries to investigate the drivers of tenure and security and mainly looking at what the implications of the social and economic uh, dynamics. Uh, and I will try to explain what I meant by uh, uh, the social and economic dynamics and their implications on tenure security. So the first, like, I, I mean, again, I, I try to um, uh, group the presentations first. Again, just taking advantage of this diagnostic tool, I'll try to present the status quo or the situations in terms of the regulatory and smart frameworks in the continent. Later on, I will again use the case that is from the four African countries. But again, I will take advantage of a very unique data set that we have collected from Mozambique in terms of like uh, looking at the intra and inter-household dimensions of tenure security. So first, again, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe I should say a few words what uh, the land governance assessment framework is, and that is a, a diagnostic land governance tool developed by the World Bank to examine challenges in the implementation and enforcement of legal and institutional frameworks uh, globally. And again, under the, I mean, again, this is like uh, um, uh, based on secondary available data or expert opinions, and uh, uh, the next few slides will use. Uh, color coded and that is A represents again favorable land governance uh, situation in a given country and D uh, uh, is the most unfavorable land governance situations and whatever happens in between will show the, 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 the stats. So the first thing is okay let's uh, I mean again the recognition of land rights what's the current status of the recognition of land rights uh, what are the implementation issues and what about the accessibility and sustainability? So when we look at the recognition of land rights, especially vulnerable groups like women, so this is again a, a subset of the land governance assessment framework indicators. This is not like the comprehensive results of the LGAF, but I try to pick parameters that I feel will fit the, the, the issue that we are discussing right now. So in terms of recognition of land rights, uh, if we look at the first parameter and the last from the second from the last parameter, that is women property rights in land, for instance, as recognized by the relevant laws and uh, are uh, regarded. So what we see is, with the exception of Ethiopia and Rwanda, the situation in terms of women land rights protection is not something that uh, the continent can be uh, again feel very proud. And the, again, the other parameter that I want to pick in terms of the recognition of land rights is how non-documented evidences is effectively used to help establish uh, or claim uh, land rights. And again, uh, what we see is, uh, with the exception of Ethiopia, Rwanda, Uganda, and Zambia, uh, the other country seems to struggle even with the uh, parameter that especially targets the most vulnerable groups like smallholders and uh, women. Okay, in terms of, well, since we have seen already in terms of the recognition of land rights, how about the enforcement and implementation issues? And again, I would like to pick three parameters. 
from the LGAF indicators. That is the first, the third, and the last indicators in the second table that shows the LGAF results. So the first is like, to what extent are the formal payments to document land rights uh, prohibitively very high to exclude again those vulnerable groups like women and smallholder farmers in Africa and what we see is again with the exception of Ethiopia the issue of like high cost of land rights registration and documentation uh, seems to be again an issue with uh, the remaining uh, 10 countries uh, needless to mention the names of these 10 countries as it is very clearly represented. So even if there is uh, again uh, issues with the cost of uh, again this the pragmatic way of land rights registration in the continent, uh, we also uh, I also try to pick on like how, how about the informal payments, the bribes, uh, or and corruption issues. And the the third parameter is uh, are informal payments discouraged? And again, what we see is uh, again with the exception of Rwanda. That remains to be, especially in Ethiopia, Ghana, and Madagascar, that the informal payments and issues of corruption seems to be again unfavorably discriminating those vulnerable groups. And the last is uh, how about again with implications on the customary tenure system and traditional way of land governance? Uh, are there uh, accessible? I mean, the, the appealing dispute land dispute resolution mechanisms uh, are they accessible, affordable, and timely? And process, uh, process of appealing these disputes. What we see is, with the exception of Ghana and Rwanda, that remains to be again one of the challenges of maintaining good land governance uh, in the continent. And the last kind of uh, dimension that I would like to consider here is how about the land uh, service delivery systems? Are they accessible and sustainable? And as I mentioned in the first few slides, uh, the issue. I mean, what we have seen over the last few years in Africa is not the lack of uh, countries or governments trying to do something to improve land governance, but it is the issue of the sustainability of these programs because some of these programs are heavily funded by donor funds. In the moment the donor fund uh, is withdrawn, what we see, what was considered as the best tool to enhance land governance starting to fall apart. So, and again, with this uh, third dimension, I would love to take the uh, audience to have a closer look at the second and third parameters. That is, uh, at the implementation of land policies posted matched in, with benefits and adequately resourced locally. So this is our governments, again, whether it's land titling program, whether it's administrative reforms, are they locally resourced? And uh, because this has a huge implication on the sustainability of these programs. And again, uh, Madagascar and Rwanda, with the exception of Madagascar and Rwanda, the remaining eight countries seems to again struggle with these dimensions of uh, one indicator of showing the good land governance. And uh, especially with the particular relevance to what IFPRIS has been trying to do with the African Land Policy Center, we also try to look at how these uh, programs are regularly monitored and whether there is a regular monitoring and reporting systems. And again, this is also one dimension that we don't see many of the countries uh, performing uh, really well. So after looking at this kind of the status quo, what the status quo shows in terms of good land governance or maintaining good land governance in the continent, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we also try to use uh, household surveys that uh, are very good in, 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 in land rights issues, land tenure issues, and this we also we try to use uh, data sets from uh, I should say uh, mainly Ethiopia, Ghana, Mozambique, and Nigeria. These uh, four countries. We also try to do similar analysis with Malawi, but uh, there is uh, uh, some data gap that we're uh, trying to deal with. So I will, over the course of the next few slides, I will present results from Ethiopia, Ghana, Mozambique, and Nigeria, uh, and these are like kind of nationally representative surveys that we we feel are good enough to have a goal in terms of understanding what are the driving uh, factors in, in, in understanding the perceived tenure security of households. So first, when we look at the patterns in terms of tenure insecurity, again in Ethiopia, Mozambique, and uh, Tanzania, what we see is uh, an increasing trend in, in the level of perceived tenure security. And again, uh, later on, I'll try to disaggregate even what we mean by perceived tenure security. Uh, that is uh, private tenure risk versus public tenure risk. But this is 
whether households, if households report that they fear losing the land because of expropriation or even because of individual disputes, we consider it as a kind of a binary variable. And what we see is not only is the level of perceived tenure security, insecurity uh, considerably high, but what we see in the, those three countries, Ethiopia, Mozambique, and uh, Tanzania, kind of uh, growing trend. As I mentioned earlier, we also try to disaggregate whether the perceived tenure risk is more of like a collective tenure risk. We call it collective tenure risk if it is uh, households reported that they fear losing the land because of uh, eviction by private investor or expropriation by the government. This is how we define collective tenure risk. Whether uh, the other one is private tenure risk is if households uh, source of tenure insecurity is associated with kind of uh, uh, private tenure risk that is whether it's a dispute, inheritance, uh, divorce, all these kind of things, we have to group them as private tenure risk. And what is interesting in this uh, slide that shows the source of tenure insecurity is that uh, in the case of Mozambique, in, in Nigeria and Ethiopia, predominantly the private tenure risk seems to be uh, the predominant source of tenure insecurity. But in Mozambique, it's not only that private tenure risk is uh, relatively lower as compared to the other countries, but we see again the proportion, the very source of tenure insecurity seems to be uh, fear of losing land due to government expropriation or eviction by private investors. And I think uh, the audience may, may associate this again, Mozambique has been uh, the, the target of the, the large scale land-based investments. And it's not surprising to see that the story is flipped in the case of Mozambique compared to Nigeria and Ethiopia. So, and as I mentioned earlier, we also tried to, okay, if once we see that the relatively high proportion of households and increasing trend in proportion of tenure insecurity, we also try to look at what, what could be the driving sources. And again, even if there is a growing uh, kind of uh, consensus that there is uh, scrutiny under the customary tenure system, there was no evidence in terms of what the social and uh, economic dynamics are uh, having an impact on the protection the customer tenure system used to give to smallholders and women and other vulnerable groups. So we, we tried to generate uh, some uh, cluster level indicators to, to uh, proxy. Uh, for instance, we try to look what's the implication of, again, the, the emerging land markets, uh, the, uh, uh, again, economic vibrancy. So economic vibrancy can be, I mean, again, another way of describing urbanization, level of urbanization. So these are, uh, again, uh, the case of Nigeria, Mozambique, and Ethiopia. Uh, what NA represents that data is not available, but what we see is Prevalence of land markets is again uniformly affecting, uh, associated with eroding perceived tenure security in all countries. And the other thing we also try to look is how economic vibrancy or level of urbanization, and similarly, urbanization is also associated with higher level of uh, ten tenure insecurity. And again, I want to remind the audience that here we are not differentiating private tenure risk with public tenure risk. In general, whether it's private or uh, public tenure risk, we tried to look at what the driving forces, but in the case of Mozambique, which I will come in a few minutes, we, we try to disaggregate those sources of tenure security. The other factors that we also try to look at are what are the social dynamics. Social dynamics could be uh, migration, uh, population density, all these kind of uh, uh, variables. And when we look at uh, comparing uh, uh, indigenous if the respondent is indigenous or whether it, uh, they are immigrants, what we see is there is a very uh, robust result showing that plot holder, immigrant plot holders, or if the uh, respondent or the household is non-indigenous, that is uh, again positively associated with higher level of tenure insecurity. We also try to compare whether tenure insecurity varies based on the proportion of immigrants or we can say social uh, homogeneity. And uh, the result shows that uh, in communities with higher proportion of households, whether the head and or the spouse are immigrants are associated with high level of uh, tenure insecurity. And the last row shows that uh, we see, uh, again, uh, differentiation comparing whether the plot holder is female or not. And it shows that being uh, when a plot owned or if the plot holder of the, the, the is female, it is highly positively associated with uh, tenure insecurity. 
The other, the other the, the dynamics or parameters that we also try to look at uh, across those four countries is also to what extent social or political connectedness and legal literacy have uh, implications on perceived tenure security. And this could be again associated with what we consider as the elite capture, to what extent those who are politically or socially connected uh, and the level of perception of tenure security compared to those who are not socially or politically connected. Again, uh, the data uh, in terms of social connectedness is available for Mozambique and what we see it's positively associated, social uh, connectedness is associated with enhance, uh, enhancing perceived tenure security and again uh, consistent to the other uh, findings that we are trying uh, we are starting to look in various countries again legal literacy awareness of rules and regulations that govern the land sector uh, is positively associated with higher level of uh, perceived tenure security so after looking at these uh, different dimensions what we also try to understand is what is the the, the intra-household uh, dimensions of perceived tenure security, not only comparing female heads with male heads as it is done in many of the household surveys that uh, many studies have been conducting. In Mozambique, we tried to use a, a very unique data set because uh, I'm mean, taking advantage of the uh, agricultural household survey uh, in 2015-2016. We also tried to, to in, uh, conduct interviews of rich land tenure modules, not only to the heads and uh, or female heads and male heads, but also the spouses of the principal uh, male. And this provides an opportunity to have uh, an understanding of drivers of perceived tenure security, what we call the inter-household uh, analysis that is comparing uh, the, the, the female head with male heads, but also the intra-household dimensions. Because again, many of the land right protection programs uh, doesn't seem to take into account the intra-household dimensions, and we would love to share some uh, impressions in terms of what the result uh, shows. And as I defined uh, tenure insecurity, um, um, we use two parameters to define tenure insecurity. Collective tenure risk, again, is associated with risk of uh, uh, expropriation or eviction by the private sector or, and what we consider as individual tenure risk that is the type two the tenure insecurity takes the value of one if the respondent is perceived that it is likely that they will lose ownership or use rights due to private land disputes, inheritance, border, divorce, associated disputes. And uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the fact that we do not only have female uh, uh, rich data sets on female heads and male heads, we also have the response, similar responses for the spouse of the principal male, and this provides an opportunity again to have uh, an inter-household and inter-household dimensions of understanding drivers of perceived tenure security. So, um, uh, the, the, this uh, the, the uh, uh, analysis on using the pooled sample that is again pulling together the three groups of uh, respondents, the male heads, female heads, and female spouses. First, what we see is uh, being a female head is positively associated with uh, higher likelihood of perceived tenure insecurity, but uh, negatively associated with fear of land loss due to expropriation or uh, eviction by the private sector. And when we try to pull the data and uh, compare uh, the, the uh, drivers of perceived tenure security, female heads, female spouses with the principal male, and this is uh, because the data only allows us to conduct this type of analysis on the individual tenure risk, that is tenure risk associated with divorce, inheritance, and uh, the like. What we see is, again, being a female head household is uh, more likely to be uh, uh, perceived tenure security due to individual tenure risks, but again, female spouse is negatively associated, and this is in relative to being male-headed household. So again, focusing on, after looking at the intercept effects of uh, private tenure risk and uh, comparing the three groups of, uh, uh, we try to look at the intercept effects, and as was described in the uh, four comparisons of the four country case studies, uh, respondents, again, legal awareness or legal literacy has interesting findings that shows legal literacy is positively associated with enhancing tenure security of, uh, again, the, the dependent variable is tenure and security. So whatever negative option uh, we see in this table uh, is a positive 
it ha has a positive meaning. So tenure insecurity is the dependent variable. So uh, legal literacy is again uh, uh, negatively affecting tenure insecurity, indirectly meaning enhancing tenure security. But interestingly, legal literacy or awareness of the rules and regulations that manage the land governance sector is negatively or is negatively associated with uh, being a male head householder. And I don't know what the policy implication for this, whether we should uneducate our male heads or not. But that's, that's again, a very interesting finding that uh, we have seen. And again, these are the, the three groups. The, the second column is for female spouse, the third column for male heads, and the last column is for female heads. And uh, uh, the uh, being, uh, I mean, a younger respondent is again, uh, I mean, associated with higher level of tenure insecurity as a female head, but not significantly affecting female spouses or being head. Uh, and again, as I mentioned earlier, being uh, indigenous or non-immigrant matters most for female heads as compared to female as a spouse uh, and uh, the male uh, principal male respondents. Uh, and as mentioned earlier, we also try to look at what are the differential impacts of the uh, land market vibrancy on, on, on these three groups of respondents. And uh, again, uh, uh, more active land markets seems to erode and ensure are likely to erode tenure security of female as a spouse compared to female heads and principal male. And this is very interesting because again, this is where we are trying to show the intra-household dimensions of the uh, market vibrancy and economic vibrancy. Uh, the other uh, findings is that, again, uh, relative land abundance, community-level land, relative land abundance seems to matter most in uh, enhancing tenure security of female heads, uh, but uh, not significant for female as a spouse and the principal male. And this is, again, very interesting because, again, this is where the customary tenure system comes under more scrutiny in areas where there is a relative land scarcity the most vulnerable group to be affected in terms of their perceived tenure security are the female heads. And because perhaps, again, the female spouses are feel more secure because they, they have the protection of the principal male, maybe. And again, when we try to look at uh, the mode of land acquisition, whether uh, what type of mode, mode of land acquisition is associated with higher tenure security and for which group. And again, uh, uh, the result shows that uh, um, the rows are a little bit uh, purchase parcels, uh, I mean, parcels acquired through purchase are more likely to, uh, to, to show higher level of perceived tenure security for female heads, but inherited parcels seems to be the case for uh, female spouses. And we also tried, again, finally, we tried to look, okay, now we're starting to see that uh, the emerging land markets in Africa are associated, unless we do something, Emerging land markets or land market vibrancy start, um, seems to erode the protection the customary tenure system used to give to those vulnerable groups and women and the youth. So we try to look at, okay, what do we see? What's the implication of this land market vibrancy in those four countries? Case studies looking at only proportion of parcels with women landholders. And again, this would be a, a collective right or a sole uh, landholding right by women. So whether it, we don't, we didn't make any differentiation. And well, interestingly, in those comparing those four countries, the countries that we consider as relatively land scarce countries, these are countries where we see uh, a negative uh, correlation between land market vibrancy and tenure security. Because in areas with it is in areas with less vibrant land markets in Ethiopia and Malawi that we see uh, a larger proportion of parcels with women landholders, whereas in areas with vibrant land markets, again, this is the more we commodify the land, the more land becomes, uh, or in areas with uh, active land markets, these are areas that we see uh, women struggling to, to come as sole or joint landholders. Similarly, the youth, again, we define youth here 15 to 35. So in the surveys, if there is anyone mentioned to have land rights over a given parcel uh, within the age bracket of 15 to 35, we consider this as uh, a demi and we try to compare proportion of youth landholders in 
vibrant land markets versus less vibrant, vibrant land markets and consistently like the women land rights again Ethiopia and Malawi seems to show that uh, youth uh, struggles in uh, with their protect or land rights in, in areas where there is vibrant land markets and again this could be uh, because of the relative scarcity of land in those areas with uh, vibrant land markets so overall as uh, I mean, the, the findings reinforce the, 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 the impression that the customer retainer system is under more scrutiny or pressure in areas with commercial land markets, more vibrant land markets, uh, and uh, this implies that interventions should focus again uh, as uh, the results from the LGAF uh, uh, tool shows that intervention should focus in support to the local capacity in maintaining good land governance. And again, the, the, the emerging land markets is also showing that perhaps uh, the traditional leaders are uh, uh, prone to, to acting as land major, managers instead of custodians of the land in areas where there is emerging land market compared to areas where the traditional agriculture is practiced. Uh, and, and the other thing is maybe when we make all this kind of uh, land in the emerging land markets has also implications what type of negotiations are happening uh, whether there is information asymmetry and uh, the like. Legal literacy and again what we have seen consistently in all the countries, case study countries, whether it is the ELGAF results or the case study countries using household surveys is that legal literacy programs seems to enhance tenure security of households, especially women, uh, both uh, female as a head and uh, spouse, and can be considered as a less costly or sustainable policy measures towards safeguarding uh, land rights. And overall results also imply that land rights registration and documentation programs should, again, we can maximize the outcome of this land registration or land titling programs if we package those programs with legal literacy. And again, to this would be uh, to in, in order to avoid what we call as the elite capture uh, situation and uh, those uh, perhaps again the results that uh, shows that in areas with economic high economic vibrancy and land market vibrancy these are areas where we see uh, of course especially marginalized groups struggling to protect their own land rights so uh, land registration or documentation of land rights at community level can be uh, deemed sufficient in areas with less commercialized or traditional agriculture and in, uh, the issue of sustainability is also uh, very important because whatever actions policy actions or interventions uh, being undertaken by governments unless it is sufficiently uh, resourced through uh, local means uh, and minimize the donor uh, dependence will the continent will remain to again struggle in terms of maintaining the sustainability of these uh, innovative interventions to enhance uh, tenure security and overall programs which aim to enhance land tenure security should again take into consideration the contextuality uh, and, and the characteristics of communities and groups of households during the formulation and implementation of uh, programs. Thank you very much. I'm not sure if, uh, yeah, great. three Thanks. minutes more. No, that was great. Perfect yeah. timing. So um, before I, I pose a few questions to Hosanna, let me just remind all your listeners to, yeah, feel free, and I encourage you actually to submit some questions on the, in the chat. We received a couple, but we're, there's time for many more. Um, I'm going to start maybe with a couple of questions around the land governance assessment framework data that you presented because we had a couple of questions come in on that. So one, one, uh, so two, 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 of two that I'll pose and then maybe it leads to a third one is that on the, in terms of recognition of rights, it was noted that in terms of recognizing the rights of vulnerable communities uh, that the, it seemed that the scores for Ethiopia and Uganda, somebody noticed, were similar, yet their form of tenure systems are quite different in terms of state ownership of land versus not. So they, they were wondering how two diverse countries like that could wind up with the same score on, on, on a recognition of rights, uh, given that certain rights are restricted in Ethiopia. The other thing, uh, another just related was noting that um, on informal payments, uh, it was noted again that in Ethiopia they were made, uh, it was received an A grade on not in, not on kind of clamping down on, on informal payments. 
but the, that person wrote that they they weren't quite sure if that if that could be trusted <laughs> that mm -hmm. result in case of Ethiopia. So I think that leads to generally you could maybe comment on that one in particular, but just maybe a general question is how um, reliable are some of these results and are they updated periodically? How often are they period updated and, and are and are, are new or maybe say improved methods being used in the LGAP as time goes uh, goes on? So maybe you can reflect on those questions. Yeah, okay. So yeah, as uh, you rightly mentioned, uh, um, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, actually my first uh, task uh, after I joined IFPRI was to work with the World Bank team uh, implementing the land governance assessment framework and they could be better positioned to uh, answer these questions but uh, this uh, methodology or the tool is uh, based on available secondary data I mean again so it's and again also expert opinion uh, and uh, the issue that was raised at least I know five six uh, seven years ago is unless this is updated periodically what we will uh, see is the kind of uh, an issue but what is innovative about the land governance assessment framework is it is not like uh, say someone from IFPRI or someone from Europe or the US telling these countries I mean labeling countries so you're doing bad or good but it is kind of uh, the citizens of these countries engaging their government communicating these results but again uh, there was an attempt by the World Bank team to update this uh, periodically and uh, also inform the monitoring and evaluation programs so I think uh, whatever I uh, but what's interesting is most of these studies land governance assessment framework studies have been conducted for the last eight nine years so again that also provides the comparability of the studies uh, uh, but uh, as, as, as you rightly mentioned uh, it is quite they provide the opportunity again to ask more. Mm -hmm. I think they may not be considered as sufficient independently, but again, uh, the, the LGAP studies have been, uh, again, the basis, a uh, good foundation to for further studies, and the updating is uh, quite uh, very interesting mm -hmm. uh, issue because, again, I mean, the last eight, nine, ten years, many of these countries have gone through a lot of land governance. Uh, I mean, for actions, policy actions, and interventions to improve land governance. But uh, I think maybe I should have mentioned mm -hmm. which year the studies were conducted. But mm -hmm. it is sufficient to mention that these are within eight to nine years uh, period. Since 2011, at least I know, uh, because uh, the Free World Bank uh, joint project, uh, many of these countries uh, after 2011, uh, Nigeria, Ghana. Uh, and I know some of these countries have already updated because Ethiopia was one of the pilot uh, before 2010, but uh, recently also Ethiopia updated the uh, land governance assessment framework study uh, recently. So there is also ongoing updating of this. So maybe one more question on this global perspective before maybe I think some other questions are coming in on your other micro studies, but on the on the LGAP, so it's quite obvious that countries were a bit more advanced on, on the policy side of things, of the recognition, and a little bit more behind on the implementation and service delivery. Um, and I was qu I'm quite aware that at, at, the at, the, at the stage of policy development, there was a lot of good uh, collective action on the continent of Africa of, of people sharing experiences with good policy formulation. Is that still continuing today um, in terms of implementation issues and service delivery? Is there other mechanisms where countries can share their uh, you know, experiences with others? So again, this is uh, very interesting because uh, this also uh, is related to what uh, the pilot project, IFPRI, uh, the Africa Land Policy Center, and the monitoring and evaluation of land governance also is, is a good opportunity to, to, to maintain the South-South learning in terms of the formulation and implementation. Uh, so, and not only at the continental level, even at the REC level, uh, for instance, I know of the ECAD land governance unit trying again to maintain the South-South learning in terms of the formulation and implementation. So 
as an observer, mm -hmm. signs are very encouraging, mm -hmm. uh, at least because uh, what was deemed as best practice uh, in, in different countries, uh, the replicability without taking into account the replicability of these best practices, you may see some countries trying to copy paste what whatever first sign of success is uh, shown in one country, but again, uh, because of the context that I mentioned, the contextuality, unless you take those into account and understand, or simply documenting what is working best where doesn't mm. guarantee you yeah. the replicability. Yeah. So with this, uh, again, unique data sets, what many researchers, including researchers from IFPRI, trying to do is the why. Unless we understand why those uh, interventions or policy uh, uh, actions are working in given countries, without understanding the why, you are always risking the replicability and and that we, we may prepare ourselves for a disappointment unless we uh, go one step further and understand the what works where uh, and the why. Okay, I move on now to some more. Maybe just can you um you, you mentioned that the measurement of tenure insecurity is the, the uh, perception of lose or fear of losing land. Um, can that be asked in the same way in the different countries, say, say the case of Ethiopia, where you don't have uh, ownership rights anyway? Um, is that is it perceived similarly as other countries? And, and, and then I guess more generally, is there other ways to capture tenure and security besides that question? And did you explore other measures, for example? Uh, so, uh, I mean, at least in, in the countries where uh, my personal research interest uh, has mainly focused in the case of Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Mozambique. One thing that we try to disaggregate is at least just um, you feel secure about your land rights may not be enough to ask because unless, so the reason why we, we, we feel like the disaggregation is very necessary is because the very policy actions that help you enhance tenure security depends on what caused the tenure insecurity, right? And again, right. if you look at the package of policy and administrative uh, reforms that can enhance tenure security, that includes, again, the legal literacy. Simply, that could be the less costly uh, way of enhancing tenure security could be uh, legal awareness, mm -hmm. making the people aware of the rules and regulations that govern the land governance sector. There could be, if even when you look at the land registration, land titling, land titling at household level, land titling at parcel level, or land titling at community level. And this, without understanding what caused the tenure insecurity, what level of titling or what level of documentation of land rights could be deemed sufficient. And again, the result shows that in areas where there is less commercial agriculture or in areas with less vibrant land markets, perhaps land uh, land right documentation at the committee level could be a very good starting point, yeah. right? So the reason for the need to disaggregate the sources of tenure security without simply asking, or oh, do you feel uh, losing? Uh, uh, and again, the questions are not framed in a way, and this is again the World Bank team, the LSMS team has done a very good job in terms of uh, and updating the way those questions should be asked, uh, is that, the questions are not like, do you feel losing your land ownership? What makes the results to be comparable across countries is if you're losing the rights you have over the land. Mm -hmm. So that could be ownership in some countries, that could be land use rights in another countries. Uh, but again, is it more as related to collective tenure risk that is protection by private uh, investor or expropriation by the government? So again, the way the questions should be framed uh, maybe I should, I also recommend for the audience to have a look at the modules of the LSMS uh, the, uh, data collection. Uh, they have done a very good job recently in, in again, uh, keep updating and framing those questions and the way we ask them really matters, not only for understanding, but also maintaining the comparability of the uh, studies uh, across countries. Right. Okay, so now I'm going to bring you down to a couple of the specific findings that you have. So there was uh, one one uh, question came in about um, in the case of uh, Mozambique, for example, 
where you were able to differentiate between men and women. Um, there, there was, we, we know that um, in Africa, quite a few um, uh, women tend to outlive males and they become, you know, uh, they become widows over land. So the question was whether you're able to differentiate and distinguish widows from other females who are the sole, sole owners of, uh, of plots, for example, and whether that had a distinction about whether a, a woman was a widow or not uh, in terms of their perceived dependence. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. So, uh, so at least the Mozambique data uh, has done a very good job in in pushing the analysis, in pushing the discussion to a different level uh, by at least not grouping female as you know as a, as a homogeneous group, right? Yeah. Because what we did in the case of Mozambique is female as a spouse versus female as a head. Yeah. But I think what what makes this question interesting is mm -hmm. okay how about again another level of disaggregation yeah. uh focus disaggregating the females as a head it is very doable mm -hmm. because we have the characteristics of the female heads yeah. uh of course there is a risk of again losing the degree of freedom right because uh, yeah we are, we are going to again uh disaggregate the uh, as i as showed because we only have like 928 uh, uh, yeah, a 928 uh, uh, female heads in Mozambique, and the question seems to okay. Can we have another mm -hmm. level of disaggregation uh, uh, focusing on those 928 right. households? Um, at least we can yeah. have a go with a descriptive uh, kind of characterization of mm -hmm. like female is because they could be heads through mm -hmm. divorce. Uh, or being widow, or even single uh, female and yet to be married, all these kind of things. And I think it's very interesting. Maybe that's uh, for okay. <laughs> so just in a, a related question came in on Malawi because it was observed that in Malawi you have matrilineal, patrilineal, matrilocal, all sorts of uh, different types of uh, uh, customary inheritance practices. So and then um, so I, you had mentioned that you really hadn't. Uh, dug in the data too much in Malawi, but is that going to be an important distinction? And and did that did that distinction come up in some of your other countries? Yeah, I think so. What makes uh, Malawi, to the best of my knowledge, Malawi is one of the uh, countries with, uh, at the at the higher level in terms of the data demand for gender disaggregated land rights, understanding of the analysis of uh, land rights. And again, uh, colleagues from the World Bank have done a very good job recently. Uh, there are recent studies in trying to again disaggregate and have uh, more understanding of the patrilinear and matrilinear sources. But uh, yeah, from ICRI side, uh, mainly because the data just uh, came uh, available the last year or so. And again, we have we felt like the World Bank team has been doing a good job in. in uh, conducting this type of analysis, but I think that's very interesting. Uh, maybe uh, based on the pre database, Nigeria could be one country where we can do again uh, one step further in trying to disaggregate comparing communities based on the uh, Latin systems. But in the case of Mozambique, mm -hmm. uh, Malawi, like I said, uh, that is uh, uh, I don't have uh, the, the the studies on the top of my head, but uh, uh, Klaus and his team have been doing a good job in very unique data set, I should say, in Malawi and using the LSMS module, land tenure module. So, uh, another question came in about the so you presented results at the country level, which is obviously the best way to do this in a seminar and a webinar, but, but there's going to be just differences within a country, obviously. So one question came in: this, to, if it, did you have you looked at kind of within-country heterogeneity of the insecurities? And our, our, um, I know that you do some controls for some community-level variables and so forth uh, in your results. But uh, is there is, is there a sense? Uh, do you have a sense that there's a lot of variation? So like, if you have an average for Malawi or uh, Nigeria or something, is there a lot of variation within the country? That's Question one, and then a second related question was: Do you think um, that the size of the country might influence the results in the sense of maybe it's easier to govern a small country like Rwanda than a larger country? 
and could that actually help? Could that influence the, the, the findings that you there with the L gap or, or your own? Yeah. So, I mean, the, one of the conclusions from these studies is that not only across countries, uh, but even within countries, context matters, right? I mean, take Ethiopia. You cannot really come up with the one policy prescription that will help you address the land governance issues in, in the country. You know, the lowlands, the highlands, highly densely populated areas, uh, sparsely populated areas, even in terms of like areas with uh, land active land markets versus mm -hmm. areas less active land markets. So, so uh, even uh, I mean, again, I'm showing the two slides. Those two slides, in terms of how mm -hmm. land market vibrancy is affecting within countries, we see again a starking uh, evidence showing that, uh, for instance, female uh, uh, land ownership or land holding rights of female uh, significantly varies within countries, especially Malawi and Ethiopia, uh, that it is in, in uh, areas where there is less active land markets that you see. The proportion of females. So there are there are again interesting findings even within countries showing uh, even the in depth uh, analysis the, the last few tables that I have presented uh, shows even the the, the difference uh, in terms of the source not only the source of tenure insecurity but even by different groups that we see the economic vibrancy and social and economic dynamics that I have tried to explain. Uh, matters and the last question was like okay so can we confidently say that maybe being small is beautiful <laughs> <laughs> maybe in the case and again if we say context matters or uh, coming up with the right policy and tools to enhance tenor security I mean you're running a lower risk of uh, being compromised by the context if the country is small right mm -hmm. because the within country variation uh, so this is just my personal yeah. uh, observation yeah. that uh, maybe that's also one thing that the continent has gone a little bit further is now uh, there is a huge appetite for understanding the why. Mm -hmm. Right? Before it was like okay, let's uh, countries were scrambling for signs of innovations, mm -hmm. best practices, and copy pasting. Take for instance, if Nigeria is uh, duplicating what Rwanda. Uh, has been uh, praised for the systematic land tenure regularization program. Definitely, there is only one outcome coming out of that because we cannot even, I mean, the very two countries yes. <laughs> with the, uh, contrasting contexts. So, so yeah, I would say, I mean, again, uh, yeah, the, like uh, other public uh, service deliveries, land governance service delivery really matters uh, because we need to take context into account and yeah, I would say yeah being small could have uh, but that doesn't guarantee you success <laughs> that yeah, smaller yeah. you are that right in that you could be yeah um that so maybe just a question just came in that's related to our discussion so I'll pose this before I move on to a couple others but uh, it was noted in, in it came in, in Nigeria land ownership is vested in the governor of the state and so there's diversity again this comes up to the diversity so are you able to kind of um, uh, characterize that diversity at state level in, in Nigeria with uh, the samples that you have uh, maybe that's also something I missed mentioning uh, earlier the data used uh, for the Nigeria analysis is uh, from, from one state Okay. Again, yeah, the, I mean the, uh, so the sample size versus the quality of the data. That was mm -hmm. the compromise that we had to make in Nigeria. In the case of Nigeria, we used data from Southwest Nigeria, I guess, on the state. Uh, so that didn't give us the opportunity to look at the uh, various contexts within the country. Uh, I know the 2012, 2013 LSMS data had uh, has uh, a little bit uh, rich uh, land tenure uh, questions, so perhaps that could also be of an interest for the audience to have a go in terms of I mean, disaggregating the analysis we use is from a particular state. Good. Yeah. So uh, one question was, 
to what extent are, are all these results published? Uh, mm -hmm. And what we can say anyway is that we can follow up with people who have registered to send them a list of your uh, mm -hmm. publications. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that. But it, do you want to give a general overview of where you are um, in terms of publication of these results? Uh, so, uh, yeah, the Ghana paper is already published uh, in land use policy. Uh, Ethiopia uh, study is on the pipeline. But many of the studies uh, uh, were conducted the last two years, and they are, if pre-publications at least, if pre-discussions. Yeah. So uh, it is. Um, okay. Uh, we can we can share. So we'll share the yeah, titles yeah, with yeah. everyone after this. So now let's turn over to the last few minutes to policy implications. We touched on it in a couple of questions, but generally, how um, how have you yourself? in trying to engage in policy processes in some of the countries that you've been working and has there been already some uptake uh, from some of these studies or some of your previous work that were, were before? So what's the level of, let's say, the, the appetite for evidence-based policy reforms in this area and um, how we yeah. can help? Okay, so again, uh, talking from my own personal experience, mm -hmm. uh, the learning curve has been very steep. Uh, because personally, what I have experienced is that the more you involve the relevant governments and donors, because whatever we do, uh, we're not only trying to inform policymakers, right? The donor uh, group uh, is also our target. Because as I mentioned earlier, in, in Africa, there is a huge reliance on donor resources to fund this mm -hmm. whatever innovative land governance uh, uh, programs or uh, policy actions. So uh, the more you involve those stakeholders, the donors and the government policymakers from the inception of the research, the higher the likelihood of the uptake of the research. So uh, currently we do work with government stakeholders in at least all the, 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 the at least the three countries, Nigeria, uh, Ethiopia and, and Mozambique, uh, uh, by and those countries are still ongoing uh, mega projects to enhance tenure security, be it land registration, community level land registration, individual level land registration programs in Mozambique, uh, the second stage land certification program in Ethiopia. So we are either at ministerial level or at direct uh, directorate level. We try to involve, and one way of again doing this is we take advantage of national uh, policy dialogues uh, or uh, seminars or conferences. Again, joint sessions, organizing joint sessions with this. Uh, and for instance, in the case of Ethiopia, uh, we're trying to at least uh, uh, inform ongoing policy actions, working closely with the different uh, land. Uh, investment for uh, transformation, the LIFT program, but at the same time also with the directorate under the Ministry of Agriculture uh, to, to inform the ongoing mega project or second stage land certification program uh, in Mozambique, uh, more or less the same. Uh, but these are at national level, but also we try to zoom out and also try to engage at continental and uh, regional level. And I should say our engagement with the monitoring and evaluation of land governance with the Africa Land Policy Center, when they have different strategy, framework, documentations, mm -hmm. we try to inform some of the directions or the strategies being developed based on the findings from the pilot uh, or case study countries. Uh, and uh, there is now new opportunity also even to work closely with the ECAD uh, land governance unit, and that will provide uh, the much needed opportunity again to engage uh, mm. to be engaged in the policy dialogue so not only at national level we also try to rely on this uh, continental and regional platforms uh, or again to make use of the research mm. findings inform policy actions in direction yeah. Maybe just coming to a couple of specific examples. So you have you've noted that actually uh, the emergence of land markets can create insecurity for some vulnerable groups. Um, and I guess in your countries that you're studying, like in the case of Ethiopia, maybe only rental tenancy kinds of markets, but in other countries it could be sales and um, a mix of different markets. But is there any is there any government or or, or, or on your own reflection, are there any ways to make markets? Um, um, 
to, to be more uh, beneficial for the vulnerable because we do realize that they're based, say, on, in, on income and wealth and, <laughs> and so forth. And so there's an advantage for the wealthy and the elite. But how, how are there countries that have taken some steps to make to, to reduce vulnerability? Yeah, I think it's, this is a very interesting question because, again, it reminds me of something that I should have mentioned as a caveat mm -hmm. when I was presenting the results. Mm -hmm. Those findings that I have presented does not necessarily mean to say land markets are bad for the poor uh -huh. or the youth or the or women. The results are saying the customer, the status quo land administration system, which is most mm -hmm. in many of these countries, the customer retainer system. Yeah seems to struggle more mm -hmm. in protecting land rights of mm -hmm. women, youth, and other vulnerable groups in areas where land markets right. are active. Right. This doesn't necessarily mean land markets are bad for, right. for, for this, but unless you do something, they are going to, again, uh, favor those marginalized groups. So it's more scrutiny on the, on the, on the status quo land administration system. But would there be cases that you uh, that I may have seen from the various studies where land markets may help even uh, enhance land access or tenure security of those vulnerable groups? I think uh, one country that I can mention is in the case of Ethiopia. That the study we conducted with other FP colleagues in, in Ethiopia in terms of like how land access or land inheritance affects livelihood uh, decisions of the youth is not only inheritance likelihood of inheriting land uh, is a, a dictating factor in migration and, and non-agricultural employment of the youth we also try to zoom in and try to look okay how does the role of land inheritance affect youth's decision comparing in areas where land markets are active versus areas land markets are less active and the results in Ethiopia seems to show that actually active land markets helps youth uh, make uh, uh, an economical decision and, or a very merited decision whether to migrate or not because it is in those areas where land markets are active that you see family-based land access not to matter most because even in Ethiopia where if the youth has access to land through the temporary means, that mm -hmm. is land rental market because land cannot be sold or bought in Ethiopia, even in areas with uh, access to land through the temporary means, that's the land rental market, you don't see you don't see that land inheritance is a defining factor whether they should migrate or not. That means they can also rely on the temporary means of land access and avoid and rewarding migration or than agricultural right. employment. And this uh, actually, one thing I didn't mention is this was a very uh, relevant policy dimension in Ethiopia because the government has been imposing restrictions on the functionality of land markets to protect uh, those uh, vulnerable groups. But actually, they, the outcome was the opposite because it is because of inactive land markets that we see out migration of the youth and uh, scrambling for employment in the agricultural sector. And do these uh, programs like a, a certification program in Ethiopia or this uh, um, documentation uh, in a statutory uh, duat holder in Mozambique, for example, does that affect the, then the perception of insecurity at all? Uh, so uh, again, uh, the presentation I had doesn't show the impact of land titling or land certification. But in the case of Ethiopia, uh, the data set that we has been collecting uh, since 2013-2014 uh, is providing a very unique opportunity at least for us to say because in Ethiopia there was a low-cost first-aid land certification program with less clarity on the boundaries which was uh, showing a, a robust positive impact on household investment, uh, land market participation and stuff. Now that's also we are, uh, there are ongoing studies to understand the impact of the second level land certification program and over the course of the next few months or to, uh, mid 2020 we will have findings. Similarly in Mozambique we are trying to work with the uh, NASA, uh, Minister of Agriculture, to look at not only the DUAT, individual level DUATs, but also collective 
what, what are the impacts of collective land rights protection and individual land rights protection. And we are trying to use uh, household surveys and special, special uh, data sets to really have the differential impacts of this. And again, okay. yeah. Great. More results will come. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So uh, hopefully that'll keep our, our listeners satisfied. So stay tuned anyway. But no, I think I, I want to thank uh, Hosanna very much for this uh, uh, great uh, webinar. So I mean, I think the, the key lessons are really that this is a very complex uh, topic. We all know that. And uh, there's no one size fits all. It's very context specific. And he's only also given, you know, one, as you could tell from the, the, the last, last responses, only a, a little bit about what he's uh, working on has been covered today about the perceptions of tenure and security. He is working on the impacts of different tenure reforms, including these legal instruments, um, not only in terms of how that shifts security perceptions, but encourages investment and other kinds of benefits and, and may reduce land markets and so forth. So there's a lot of uh, uh, important uh, things that uh, uh, we're undertaking within the PIM program, and we'll, you know, given all that, I think we we have to sign up for another webinar from you uh, <laughs> next year. So uh, thanks to everyone, and remember, you can uh, look at the, the the webinar again online uh, at pim.cgir.org. So thanks everyone, and have a good day.